welcome to episode three of Grace's Class Status and Power podcast. This is your host, writer, creator, director, and entertainer, Grace, coming to you live from my dorm room, as usual. Today we have a lot of really exciting stuff to talk about. Uh, We went through a lot in the past three weeks of Class Status and Power, so there is a lot on my mind. Um, You know, we're going to talk about capitalism, my favorite subject. Uh, We're going to talk about elite theory, about um, big philanthropy, all that fun, good stuff, so stay tuned. So before we get into the, you know, the meat of everything here, I wanted to just give a, a quick fun fact because... You know, I was thinking to myself, what is this podcast missing? And um, the answer hit me. Fun facts. So my fun fact is something that I learned this past week. And that is that Pitbull, the famous rapper, I don't really know what he's up to now, but, you know, I'm I'm assuming he still is rapping. Um, He has an album called Climate Change and an album called Global Warming and an album called Globalization. So it's not exactly super connected to everything here. I just, I thought I would throw that out there because I think more people should be aware of that. Um, certainly has impacted my perspective on, on Pitbull for sure. Anyway, moving on. So I wanted to start off this episode by kind of going back a few weeks in our class and talking about our unit on Capitalism and Racism, uh, which is when we read the pieces by Desmond and Omi and Winant. Um, and basically, I, you know, in my reading response journal, I mentioned that these two pieces really remind me of two pieces I had read in Environment and Society, a class that I took last semester. Uh, and those pieces were The Nature of Race by Kay Anderson and Dominion by Walter Johnson. And so... I thought I could expand upon the connections that I made there um, in this episode just because I think, you know, there are a lot of important things to be said, obviously, about the way that race is talked about and the way that it is, like, uh, rooted and and, um, discussed in different disciplines. And obviously, uh, Environment Society was a geography class, and this is a sociology course, so it's it's interesting to think about like the different ways that we approached similar units on capitalism and racism. Um, and so similar to how Omi and Winant kind of talked about like the root of race and racism in obviously in the history of slavery in America, uh, like the unique kind of American racism that we have today is, is deeply rooted in slavery and, um, you know, there was a quote that that I remember noting in um, in my reading response journal as well that this this kind of conversation reminded me of, which was Ta-Nehisi Coates's saying, "Race is a child of racism, not the father." Um, so that was I was reminded of that in uh, in Omi and Winant's piece when they were talking about the origins of like American racism. And that really reminded me of The Nature of Race by Kay Anderson, because in that piece, Anderson kind of talks about a similar thing. Like, she talks about um, the nature 
well, really the origin of racism, but she talks about it from a very geographic sort of perspective, uh, where she explains the history of racism as, like, a way to, uh, distinguish between people on their basis of how close they were to the land that they were living off of. So I remember she talked about how indigenous populations were racialized pretty early on because they had such a different sort of relationship to um, to the land that they were living off of because they were obviously a lot closer to the land and a lot more respectful of it than like the uh, the other settlers and everything, like the white people that came in and just kind of destroyed everything. Um, and because of their like closeness to the land, they were made into like a racial group. Or, or really, sorry, they were they were discriminated against. And like after that discrimination, um, on the basis of like their different practices of dealing with the land, they were kind of grouped together as like a race of people. So I can definitely see that's a similar tracing of, of race and racism in our country, but just from a different perspective. So it's, it is really interesting, I think, to think about the different ways that you can look at the origin of those things. Um, and obviously, like, that's very connected to capitalism, because as Desmond was talking about in his piece, you know, slavery and, um, well, slavery especially was, like, one of the earliest forms of of uh what he called low 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 road capitalism that was it um which again like I wrote about my my qualms about his his label of low road capitalism because you know I think all capitalism is low road if we're for being real but um you know it's like everything is just so connected in uh, in capitalism and racism, like, you can't separate them from each other because capitalism is fundamentally based in, um, like, a lot of the principles that he talked about, like, the, the capitalist ideas and just values are based in, like, slavery and other practices of discrimination and other, um, other just forms of expressing prejudice, like, capitalism obviously being a hierarchical system relies on those kinds of discrimination, um, that kind of, like, discrimination and just emphasizing differences between people instead of uniting them, um, so it only makes sense that these, these two things are very deeply connected to each other. We can, and we can see how deeply connected they are to each other, especially in the Dominion piece by Walter Johnson, um, and we can see that also in, in the piece by Desmond that we read, uh, but I think Desmond's piece was lacking a little bit in the connections to capitalism. I think Desmond did a good job of explaining some of the history behind uh, behind slavery in particular and explaining the practices that were used. But I really think uh, the piece by Walter Johnson, the Dominion piece, really um, nails the connections a little bit clearer um, in that piece. Walter Johnson specifically talks about how, you know, just how how deeply regulated the uh, practice of slavery was, and which is something that Desmond did talk about. Desmond mentioned um, how practices like organizing enslaved workers in rows and everything, so that you could see them very clearly and 
counting all of their their um like measuring their progress so meticulously and everything like that um but in in Dominion Johnson really expands upon that and makes it even makes that connection even clearer uh because Johnson kind of I remember Johnson talked about how um how like the bodies of enslaved people themselves were were shaped by the kind of work that they were doing and how like the size of their hands was something that determined their value because their the larger their like hands were the more uh they could pick from the field so you know in that sense i feel like johnson really nails the connection between like the way that capitalism um kind of reduces workers to the value that they bring like the and and their like potential productivity um instead of seeing them as actual like human beings um so that's obviously a concept that's not at all foreign like that's deeply rooted in slavery based on the examples that Johnson provided um which is obviously very disturbing to think about but you know when you think about how like it it makes a lot of sense to when you think about how our system is structured like of course it has roots in these like in the institution of slavery and just you know other really intricate histories of um of exploitation like it it only makes sense because you look at just how important like surveillance and numbers and measuring things and all that is to our current system and it's it like you know, obviously it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from these institutions and it comes from, like, this this history. Um, so I think in that sense, like, you know, I, I've always enjoyed thinking about, like, the roots of capitalism and the way that it is connected to race and racism because I think that's, you know, it's a, you can't have a conversation about how to... Um, you can't, like, have a conversation about abolition, for instance, like, abolishing the police, abolishing prisons, um, for, like, racial reasons, you can't have that kind of conversation without talking about capitalism, too, and likewise, you can't have a conversation about, um, like, moving away from capitalism without thinking about the racial implications of that, and, you know, like, I think progress on both fronts needs to be, simultaneous to an extent because you just can't have um you can't have racial justice without economic justice and and likewise um yeah but anyway speaking of capitalism here like when we're thinking about capitalism um and just the the structures that it has and the like the roots that it has in history uh you know you when I think about how it functions and how it has functioned I think about how it functions to create an elite class and how it functions like to perpetuate elite power and uh, like the grip of elites on our society, which brings me to our unit on elite people, which was a very interesting one. Um, you know, we, we read a lot of elite theory or we really, we read um, the reviews of elite theory from uh, Waddell, I'm going to say that's how it's pronounced, Waddell and Kahn, um, and, you know, these texts were not, like, they weren't my favorite in the world, but it was really interesting to just 
see how to get a little bit of the history of elite theory and see how it's been changing over the past century or so, um, which I think, I mean, Khan really got into a historical overview of elite theory, but yeah, I think the main, the main takeaway that I had from that unit was that, you know, there, there has been a lot of research done about elites, but there really isn't that much, that much research that considers the perspective of elites themselves, uh, which is interesting because, you, you know, you think about how closed off elites are, which really gets to the, the, um, Kusella piece about the hyperopia of wealth, you know, individuals that are really wealthy, they don't want to think that they're part of the problem, they can just completely ignore their role in perpetuating wealth inequality and other things, and just economic inequality generally, so, um, you know, a part of how they can ignore that stuff and just get away with it is because they are not the subject of these, like, elite studies, like, it's, I think it's, um, it was mentioned a few times in, in the reading, I think, by Khan, that elite individuals are not often the subject of social studies like this, um, which is interesting, too, because you, you look on the opposite end, and it's, you know, of course, there are a lot of studies on poor people, but there aren't, you know, they aren't always the, the easiest to do. Um, you know, for instance, my sister is trying to do a thesis right now at Clark, she's a senior, um, and she wanted to do her thesis working with, like, and just learning from poor people in the Maine South community and, like, talking to them and, um, you know, making them the subjects. And the Clark University IRB was very very hesitant and they still they still haven't like approved anything for her um about that because there are so many like quote unquote protections involved in um in studying poor people and I'm sure that like you Jack know a lot more about this than I do you know I, I've never had to do a study or anything but uh it just seems like there's I can see how there would be like a disparity perhaps on both ends of the spectrum where there aren't enough studies about elite individuals, but there are also aren't enough studies about poor people, um, like from their perspective and everything. Um, so in that sense, I think, you know, it was interesting to like be made aware of that disparity and, and, uh, think about it a little bit more deeply and like the implications that that has for our understanding of elite culture. Um, and, you know, thinking of elite culture and thinking of the Waddell and Khan pieces, um, two things that really stood out to me from those pieces. Well, first of all, I really appreciated Waddell's kind of mention of the vehicles of elite power. Like, the fact that Waddell talked about think tanks as one of those vehicles, I think, is really important. Um, because, you know, we don't often think about who is producing the knowledge that we're consuming and who is okaying it and who um you know who's who's like regulating it really and I think like think tanks just play such an important role in all of that because you know those are the places where that knowledge is created where those studies are being done where you're getting information from about social conditions in the world and so obviously it's it's like problematic that that is a really important vehicle of, of elites to create and perpetuate their own power through, um, because knowledge production is, like, 
you know, that that is, that's where it all starts, I guess. Like, if you don't, if you can control the knowledge that people have about certain things, and you can, like, influence it in one way or another, you know, that's, that's just immensely powerful. So, um, I appreciate that mention. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've just looked on the internet to get information about, especially about, like, statistics about, like, poverty and wealth inequality and things like that. Like, so much of the information that I have on those subjects comes from think tanks that are doing this kind of work. And the fact that think tanks are are such an important vehicle for wealthy people to exert power is scary because, you know, if, like, they're... I don't have access to just straight-up factual uh, information. Like, I, I don't have direct access to those that kinds of information um so like it has to come from a source but the fact that the source is like obviously incredibly biased and um out of touch with the rest of the world is not exactly reassuring um but it is just something that's important I think to be made aware of so that was interesting to me like thinking about that um and also thinking about you know in terms of vehicles of power like I think that Waddell could easily connect um philanthropy to a vehicle of elite power i know he talked about a few different kinds of elite power uh like think tanks consulting firms and flex nets you know honestly i don't remember what flex nets are so maybe this is a part of that maybe this goes under that but i I don't know i think another vehicle of elite power could easily be like the philanthropy industry uh, because like um like think tanks um, philanthropy organizations produce knowledge and they produce a lot of other things like they they kind of frame what is an issue and what isn't based on where they're directing efforts um, you know I think philanthropy plays a really critical role in just like how we view um, how we view like what is an important issue to think about and where our efforts should be directed, like, in terms of just, I guess, social inequalities and other kinds of inequalities, like, you know, it's it's a big industry, and it, it's obviously based on inequality, um, so it's, of course, problematic that wealthy, elite people have access to this industry in a way that most people don't, um, and it's, of course, problematic that they're the ones, you know, creating, um, creating what is, an, what is an issue and how they're going to respond to it because, you know, as really wealthy, privileged people, like, they're never, ever going to be able to know the needs of the people that they're helping as well as those people themselves know their own needs. Um, and I'm really interested in this subject, and I know that uh, Giri Hiradas focused on that a lot in um, in his work, in, in his book, Winners Take All, which I haven't read, shockingly, it's right up my alley, but I just, I haven't read it yet. Um, I actually wrote a paper on, kind of on the exact same subject of how wealthy people use philanthropy to influence politics specifically, and that was super interesting. I really enjoyed doing that research about that, um, like the longest paper I've ever written, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, I I could talk about this all day, and I I have for like, you know, for my paper, um, but I think I, c- I can easily see because I've like done that research and because I've I've read the, you know, the excerpts from um, 
or I read the articles that we, we had to read by Yuri Hiratos for this class, um, I know that the, like philanthropy itself, I think, should be considered a vehicle of elite power, uh, and perhaps, um, I mean, I don't know how old Waddell is, I don't think he would add to this right now, but anyway, um, all I'm saying is I think it's just, it's a big enough industry, and, it, and it's consequential enough that I think it could be and should be considered its own, like, vehicle of elite power, because that's another thing where, similar to knowledge production, like, philanthropy is um, just a massive, massively influential thing in everyone's lives, for the most part, um, and it's just, it's so, like, it's just so problematic for so many reasons, um, and, you know, it's like, I think it's especially dangerous for, like, billionaire philanthropy in particular, and just really, really wealthy, big philanthropy is so dangerous because, um, it contributes to, like, the, the, the hyperopia of wealth that I mentioned before, like, it is, it's those kinds of things, like, those actions, uh, to supposedly help others that can allow really wealthy people to, to, um, ignore the role that they play in producing the inequalities that they're supposedly trying to address and fix. So, for instance, you know, you look at, like, Bill Gates and what he has been doing to, or I guess, I'm not sure how active he is presently with this, and, you know, he's got a lot of other, a lot of other things on his plate right now, um, but he played a huge role in, in education, philanthropy, and, and I mean, throughout all of his his career with his foundation, but um, especially in his home state of Washington. So he, he's been a really influential person in education there. Um, and it's, you know, like his, his whole idea on the outside is, oh, you know, I want to spread charter schools across Washington State because this will fix education inequalities and everyone deserves access to good schools and whatever. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's like, it's sad, but kind of funny to see how, uh, how many billionaires can do things like that, like take on an, an issue of, of social inequality and, and claim that they want to fix it with completely, well, completely ignoring the role that they play in perpetuating it. You know, a big, a big issue of why education inequality is so extreme in certain areas is because economic inequality is so ridiculously extreme and you know, like, deeply concentrated. And, you know, there's no way to possibly separate the role that the uber-rich play in that sort of disparity there. Like, you you can't say that Bill Gates himself has no no way of... has ha, or has nothing to do with the education inequality that is in his state because, in a way, like, he he's a part of the problem and he really... Um, but then he gets to come in and, and swoop in like a superhero and say, oh no, I'm going to fix this with my billions of dollars. Even though he ends up just, he makes things a lot worse. And I could talk about that for a while, but, you know, it's just the role that they get to play as like superheroes. And, you know, it's, it's dangerous because obviously they're not superheroes. Oftentimes they cause more damage than good with their philanthropy. And um, it also is, is dangerous because they get to appear as if they're doing something. And if you're not, if you don't have time to be like critically analyzing what they're actually doing or, you know, up to date on the progress of their 
programs, then you would be able to just pass off what they were doing as genuinely kind and good, good-natured and whatever. And I'm sure a lot of it is, like a lot of billionaire philanthropy, I'm sure it is to an extent um, well-intentioned, but at the same time, you can't really separate the good intentions that they may have from the ways that doing those kinds of things will be is selfish for them and that it will benefit their um their reputations greatly and benefit um therefore like allow them to maintain the extreme wealth that they have because if they have good reputations then people won't you know people won't wake up and realize how much they're contributing to the problems that they're supposedly helping so you know I could talk about this for a long time there are so many other examples of billionaire philanthropists that are just awful um, Mark Zuckerberg has done a number of horrible things with philanthropy. Robert Mercer, horrible guy. I focused on him in the paper that I wrote, like the that I mentioned before. Um, so he's he's got a lot up his sleeve there. Um, you know, I could talk about this for so long, but I won't. Uh, I think it's been long enough. And. Um, yeah, anyway, that's just, those were the interesting things that stood out to me from the past few weeks. Um, you know, the units on capitalism, racism, and elite power. I think, you know, the, at, at, one, at a glance, they might not seem like super deeply connected, but I think the, the text that we re- looked at really did a good job of like bridging the, the gaps between them. And um, I, I appreciated learning about all of this stuff. And uh, yeah. I hope that you have a nice rest of your day, um, and I will see you in class.